Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Talking Sense. This is a three-part podcast on pricing strategies with Brett Davidson of FP Advance and was recorded as part of our development program as a workshop for our Sense advisors. Brett gives an overview of the options for charging models for an advisory firm and looks at model development as part of your overall proposition. You can find the first webinar in full for free on our website along with other proposition-related learning material. And if you're interested in learning more about how Sense can help support your advisory business, go to sense-network.co.uk. For now, though, on with the podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for, for dialing in and, uh, and joining me live. Really appreciate that. Uh, it's great to be talking to real humans. Um, look, just, to, just a quick uh, heads up. In the, the third webinar we're doing tomorrow, and, and all, all of these uh, hang together perfectly, so we're going to really uh, get into pricing in the third one, we've got a great uh, free download for you. It's a, it's a guide to pricing uh, that will just take you through um, lots of stuff that we cover in these webinars. So there'll be something there that you can go back to uh, and, and refresh on as well. Please do take notes as we go if that's, uh, if that's working for you. Uh, active engagement with this will, will really help. Uh, and I really want you to try and dig in uh, over these sessions. You know, we could, we could, we're going to talk about lots of stuff. Uh, that we could just gloss over, and you'll have heard some of these things before, but I want you to take this time, these, these few hours we've got together in the next couple of days, to really think about your business and your pricing, and, and I think you're going to find loads of value in that. So let's get started. So uh, pricing your service perfectly, this is really what we're going to be looking at over the course of the, the three webinars, and this is a pretty topical issue in the industry at the moment, isn't it? You know, every man and their dog's got an opinion about, uh, you know, whether whether asset-based charging, percentage of assets charging should be, uh, you know, banned or, or is, is in decay. Um, you know, other people are hot on flat fee charging. Uh, yet it's interesting. I talked to an advisor the other day who said they've really gone down that road and looked at it and, and decided it's not for them. So, so my view is you've got to get pricing right for you. And just copying everyone else or, or, or someone who's a leader in the industry probably isn't it. Your business may look nothing like those people. So let's get you to think about you and your circumstances uh, over these uh, over the next few hours. Okay, so just some things that I am assuming that you've got in good order. Now, if you haven't, if you sit there thinking, man, I don't have these in good order, don't panic. These are just things to go back and start to work on before you really sit down and try and perfect your pricing, because without these organised, uh, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what to tell you to charge if we don't have these things in shape. So the first one is that you you really know who you work with, okay? And that means looking at your client base, typically your top five or 10 clients give you a pretty good idea of who your target market really is. But who do you really work with? And one of the questions I, I often ask advisors I'm consulting with or in, in my Uncover Your Business Potential groups is, who do you serve? And that's the question you want to be thinking about here. Who do you serve? Who do you exist to serve as a business? Now, I know if you've been around for a while, you have accumulated a bunch of clients that potentially looks like a, a ragtag bunch of people from all, from all walks of life. I get it. But now... 10 years in, 20 years in, or however long you've been in the profession, when you think about you, your skills, your experience, the team you've got in place, the tools you've invested in, the way you present to the world, who do you serve? Who are you geared up to serve? You know, surgeons in the hospital don't see people in A&E who sprained their finger. 
right? They do surgery. And so you're, you're a bit the same. After 20 years, I'm thinking you've got some great experience here and you're geared up to serve a particular type of person, typically the people at the top end of your client bank. So you need to know that because your pricing really needs to reflect the target market or markets that you're working with. And that implies too, uh, if we've got more than one target market, we might have more than one pricing strategy. Okay, second thing you need to uh, have done to get this working really well is whatever target markets you've identified, and let me make a couple up to give you an example. Let's say we work with the at-retirement market, but we've also decided we're going to work with millennials as, a, as a, an example at the other extreme. For both of those segments, I need to know what their top five issues or concerns are. What keeps them awake at night? What do they worry about? You know, for retirees, uh, top five might be things like, uh, you know, don't lose my money, don't lose my capital because I can't make it again. Right? It took me all my life to get this much. Um, you know, will will my money last as long as I do? Uh, family issues for retirees, helping the kids, the grandkids with school fees, getting on the property ladder could be an issue. Uh, taking away the hassle from managing their stuff. You know, th these are the sorts of things that retirees worry about. Uh, will will their income uh, be stable and last them all the way through retirement? Don't 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 ring me up if I'm a retiree and say, Brett, your income's dropping by 50% this year because you know Brexit or Greece leaving the euro or, or whatever the latest economic news is. So need to understand those top five issues for those segments that you've decided to work with. And then obviously you need a package of services that looks pretty cool off the back of that to say, mate, this is what you get. Uh, when you work with us. And if you've got those things in place, then we're in a good place to have the pricing conversation. So again, don't panic if you think, look, I've got work to do on that. These are things you're going to circle back to throughout the whole of your career. But maybe you go back as a starting point and just knock those into shape uh, when you start to think about some of the things we're going to talk about in these webinars. Okay, throwaway line that we know is true. Okay, it's never about the price. It's always about the value. And you can think in your own life with your own purchasing decisions. You know, I've got a bunch of Apple products. You know, they're outrageously priced compared to if I want to go and buy a Dell laptop versus a Mac laptop. But they just really work well. And for me, the lack of hassle is the thing that delivers lots of value to me. So think of your own purchasing decisions. That's not as if I go and buy premium stuff all the time. Uh, but in some areas of your life, you think, you know what, I, I, I see the difference uh, between the ordinary product and, and the more premium product. Uh, and I, I feel like there's value in that. Uh, as my wife often says to me with, uh, with some of the stuff she buys fashion-wise, it's about cost per wear, Brett, cost per wear. Okay, so always about the value, uh, never about the price. So if you want to price your service perfectly, um, here is the way clients think about pricing in three easy steps. Now, they don't sit there and do this consciously, but this is sort of how it pops out. The first thing they're thinking about is what is my problem and how bad is it hurting me? Now, let's get, let's get real. If someone has approached you and they've agreed to give up their time to come and talk to you in your office, um, do they have a problem? I'm absolutely certain they do. Now, some clients come in and try and pretend that they don't have a problem, but I'm thinking that's bullshit, right? If they've given up their hard-earned time, their family time to come and talk to you, they've got a problem if they're in your office. So 
even the people that pretend they don't have one, our, our thing we've got to get on is how do we find out what their problem is? And we need to find out how bad it is hurting them. Like sometimes it's not hurting much, sometimes it's hurting a lot. And I'll show you how to do this in a minute. The second question the client's thinking about is, um, once you start to explain then what you do, they're thinking, will this product or service that this advisor is, is explaining to me, will it solve my problem? They're making that decision while they're there talking to you. And they're thinking then, look, if it does solve my problem, what's it worth to me? You know, does it, does it take away a lot of pain or a little bit of pain? And all this is going to have implications for how much they're prepared to pay for your service. Now, all you need to do is find the answers to each of those questions, and then you can price your service perfectly for every client. All right, I'm being facetious, okay? It's hard, isn't it, to find this stuff out. But that's all we need to do in its simplest form. What's my problem? Will your product solve my problem? And what's it worth to me if it does? Does that make sense? Okay, but here's the challenge. Value perception varies from client to client, doesn't it? Okay, so let me give you an example. Uh, my friend, Tim Hale, uh, some of you might know from Albion Strategic Consulting. Tim's an investment guru. Uh, he wrote a book called Smarter Investing, which is a great book to read for all advisors if you haven't read it. Um, but Tim's an investment guru. So I've had this conversation with him. He is not going to pay an advisor 1% of his assets under management to manage his investments, is he? He can do that himself. He does do that himself. Now, I know you're not going after investment gurus typically uh, as your clientele, but the point is in this specific case, his perception of the value that we bring to the table is completely different to most clients we work with who probably don't have any of that investment grounding and, and are worried about investing and getting it wrong. So, so he's an extreme case. He's not gonna go down that road. He's not gonna fit my model, your model when I was an advisor or, or, or with you as an advisor, generally speaking. I know for a fact, him and his wife have gone to get some paid for fee-based advice about pension issues and specific issues. Uh, his wife's a doctor, so, so she's in the NHS scheme. You need to go and talk to people who know the ins and outs of that, and they've, they've paid good money to get that advice. But my point is, different clients you talk to are gonna have different perceptions of value. So sometimes, even when we've done all this work, there's just some people we're gonna deal with who are thinking, meh, that's not really for me. And, and you could price it at a pound. and I don't think they'd still buy it. It'd be a pound too much. So for you as advisors, you need to be working through these questions in a slightly different order. So question one is still, you know, what's your problem and how bad does it hurt? And the way we find that out is by asking good questions of the client in our very first meeting. Okay, so we ask them questions and they will slowly reveal what their problem is and how bad it hurts. And that's important information for us, isn't it? If we're going to then be pricing appropriately uh, for, for the job that we're going to do. The second question you've got to get a resolution on is if, if I can solve that problem for you, what's it worth to you? And be great to know that uh, from the client as well. That's going to really help with your pricing. And then the third thing you're going to do is you're going to show the client how your product or service can take away their pain and discomfort. And maybe we could also outline how it's going to put some cash in their pocket. And if we can do that, then we've set up a value proposition 
And now it's probably just, a, a, you know, offsite and negotiation. I don't mean you're going to negotiate with every client, but it's now sort of a, a negotiation. Do they see the value the same way you've explained it? And if they do, we can probably do some business. Now, this goes without saying, but when I'm talking to clients, I'm never going to call it a problem. I'm going to call it a challenge or something like that or an issue instead. I'm not going to sit there and go, mate, what's your problem? That's not going to come across the right way, is it? But if I say, look, what's your challenge? And, 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 and how's that working for you? What, what, what grief is it causing you? We could talk about that. Okay, so let's look at some great questions you could ask in a first meeting. So these form part of uh, the list of interesting questions I use when I'm teaching advisors how to run a first meeting. Here's a sample of some of those questions. But this list of questions uh, you could use, you could, you could take these and use them in your next meeting. And you'll see that they're going to elicit a lot of this information that you're trying to find out. So the first question I might ask, now I might not ask this as the first question of the sequence. We might have talked about the client and give me an overview of your financial affairs and all that. And we've mapped out, look, they've got a house and that's worth this much and they've got debt. And da, da, da. But at some point in that meeting, I'm then going to say to the client, so Mr. and Mrs. Client, what value can I add? And then I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to sit there in that uncomfortable silence and wait for the client to answer. What value can I add? Now, I might ask this uh, a couple of different ways. I might say, what value do you think I can add? I might say, what value do you hope I can add? And I'll be cool with, with any, of, any of those variations if that softens it a bit for you. But you can just ask it cold. You don't have to ask it in an aggressive Australian style like me. You can just ask it really, really softly with, and so what, what value could I add? What value can I add to you? And that's cool. Now, when we ask this question, what do uh, most clients tell us? To be honest, they tell, tell us where they think we can add value to them. You know, they might say things like, Brett, I'm hoping you'll be able to explain, uh, you know, what, what all this, these, these statements I've got mean or, or, or you explain to me in simple terms, you know, the ins and outs of, of how we invest sensibly at our stage of life or, or how we, you know, generate enough income. Like they're going to tell you what they need. Okay. Now, what's our fear when we ask this question in particular? So when I say, what value can I add? What occasionally, there's no basis for this, right? This will happen one in 10 times, not, not nine in 10 times. But one in 10 times, you might get someone who says, well, I don't know, can you tell me what value you can add? Now, what can't I do if I get that question fired back at me? What can't I do? I can't answer that question because now the client's running the meeting. Remember, the person who's asking the questions is in charge. If they start asking the questions and I answer it, they'll ask me another question and then I answer that. And next thing you know, 45 minutes later, the meeting's gone completely off the rails. So if they say, Brett, I don't know what value you can add, you tell me. I'm going to sit there with my ready-made response and say, listen, I've got a very good idea where I think I can add value, but I'd love to hear from you. Where do you think or where do you hope I can add value to you? And I'm going to bat it straight back to the client. Does that make sense? I'm not going to answer the question. 
Nine times out of 10, that's not going to come up. I just want you to know what to do in the one times out of 10 so you don't, you don't worry about asking that question. Is that cool? Okay. The next question I'm going to ask in this sequence, and the way I'll ask this, I'm going to, I'm going to put a bit more on it. I'm going to say, look, um, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, if we decide to do some work together, what does good look like as an outcome here for you? And I'm just going to, again, shut up, let there be an uncomfortable silence that the client will fill. If I can sit there longer than they can, they'll start talking. That's how it works, okay? And, and what are they going to tell me when they, when they describe what good looks like for them? They're going to tell me all the things that are important to them, all the things they're looking for. Does that make sense? All right, it's a great question to ask. The next question I'm going to ask in this sequence is, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, what are the implications of doing nothing? What are the implications of doing nothing? Now, what am I going to get back from clients in answer to this question? They're going to start to describe for me uh, what happens if they don't do anything about the situation they've come to my office to resolve. Now, this is a great question to ask. What are we really asking here? If I go back a few slides to what I said you needed to know, what are we really asking here? We're really asking, mate, how bad does it hurt? Right? With a bit more class and sophistication than saying how bad does it hurt, we're saying, look, what are the implications of doing nothing? Now, quick story. Um, I'd been in the UK quite a long time. About five years ago, my wife and I decided we, we needed to get some financial advice. Now, I'd been thinking about doing that for the five years before then. I mean, thinking about it as in I really should get onto this, and it never got to the top of my list. And then one Monday morning, I just wake up and think, I can't take it anymore. The emotional pain's too much. We need to get some advice. So we book an appointment. Now, I, I knew all the top advisors in the UK, so we picked this guy in, in London who I know, James Harvey, uh, and we go and see James. Had he have asked me this question, Brett, what are the implications of doing nothing? I would have like fallen on the ground, you know, in a curled up in a ball going, James, I can't take it anymore. I have to do something. I have to get some answers. I have to know where I'm at. Does that make sense? And, and the clients will come in, maybe it won't be quite that extreme, but, but people are in there because it's time to do something and, and they'll tell you about that. Now, if someone said there are no implications, there's no downside, there's no risk, you could ask more questions. If you could see that there are risks, just keep asking questions and let them discover for themselves what that is. But typically, people are just going to tell you straight out that they can't take it anymore or they really, really want to do something about this. And that's great. That just gives you an indication of the pain. And that, that's important for, for when we get to the pricing a little bit later on. Uh, next question in the sequence would be, what have you thought of already? Now, what are you going to get back when you ask this question of people? What have you thought of already you know, in relation to the problem that you've come into my office to talk about? So I think here we could get a range of responses. Now, I'm thinking it's going to be a bell curve of responses. Most of them are going to be some degree of, I haven't thought of much. That's why I'm here talking to you or I've thought of this, or I Googled this, or a mate told me that, uh, you know, uh, or I know this from previous experience in an old job, 
But to be honest, there's going to be gaps and holes all through that. And so they're really going to be fessing up and saying, I've thought of bugger all, that's why I'm here. Now, again, that's really useful information. If they don't know that much or it's gappy or they can't figure it out for themselves, that's going to help with your pricing. Now, at the extremes of the bell curve, at one extreme, uh, I've had people who have done their homework. And when I said, what have you thought of already? They rattle off the strategy that I'm about to sell back to them for three grand. Okay. Now, that's not a problem because some of those people are there to get validation. They've done good work, okay, and they want a professional to confirm the research they've done and they'll pay for that. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that at all if they rattle off the whole strategy I'm about to, to report back to them three weeks later. But that's very, very rare, right? That's happened to me only a couple of times in my career. Um, there'll be other people who say, you know, I've got not a clue. But it's a great question to ask. You want to know which of those people you're dealing with and where are they on that slider of, of knowledge and information. Okay, and then the last question I'm going to ask, uh, well, actually, it's the second last question. What concerns do you have about resolving this issue? Now, when I ask this question, what are people just going to tell me straight out? They're going to tell me the concerns they have about resolving this issue. And again, that's giving me an idea of their understanding the level of pain they're feeling, really, really useful information. And then the last question I'm going to ask is, how will you then measure our performance? How will you measure our performance? Now, when you ask this question, what are people not going to say? How will you measure our performance? They're not going to say this. People are not going to say, I need you to beat the FTSE 100 by 26 basis points, right? They're not usually going to give you an investment-based response. When you ask, how will you measure our performance? They're going to say things like, well, I hope that you'll return my phone calls quickly or you'll respond to my emails. And they're going to, they're going to outline a bunch of stuff, to be honest, you can do with a blindfold on and both, both arms tied behind your back. Sometimes when they tell me this stuff, I'm sitting there slightly gutted thinking, oh, come on, man, give me, give me a challenge. Give me something, a hurdle to jump over. But they don't, right? What people are looking for is often just the basics. But they're going to tell me that. And again, this is going to complete my picture of, of what I need to find out so that later in the meeting, I can, I can price appropriately. So we're asking, you know, what value can I add? What's good look like as an outcome? What are the implications of doing nothing? Can you see that if you went through this series of questions, the answers you're going to get back are going to put you in a very, very solid position to know what the client's problem is, how bad it hurts, and that sets you up for later in the meeting starting to talk about where you think you can add some value. Does that make sense? So asking great questions uh, is the way that we get to the bottom of some of those, those sort of pricing question riddles that we don't know when the client first walks in. Okay, so you've asked great questions and you've got a clear picture now of the client's situation. Now we have to get to your remedies. So we're gonna to start to then at some point in the meeting, explain to people, and there's a, a, a range of ways we could do this, but, but let's look at the remedies that you might offer for people. So you should have a kit bag of great remedies that will solve clients' problems. So the big ones will be things like working out how much is enough. When people come in with a pension or an investment issue, 
it's never the issue, is it? It's the symptom. They're confused for sure. They think they need help on that. By the end of the conversation, usually they've realized themselves that what we really need to work out is how much do you need? And is your pension and your investments in your house going to provide it? You know, will your money last as long as you live in retirement? And the way we'll, we'll solve that is by using a cash flow model. But other things we're going to do, we're going to create an action plan for people. We'll help them put it into action. We'll meet regularly to keep them on track. Uh, if the government moves the goalposts, which they do all the time, uh, which is sort of annoying uh, when you're a citizen, but it's great if you're a financial planner, uh, I'm going to help you negotiate some of those changes. Uh, and maybe also we'll have some case studies that we could show them of other people that look a bit like them that we've helped. And we use a formula with a case study. We'll provide a background. What were the challenges the client faced? What we did? And here's the results and how they lived happily ever after. That's sort of your model for a case study. Um, remedies should have a whole lot of value for people. You know, for some people, it'll be saving them time. You'll have lots of clients who could do this themselves, but who could be asked? I want to go out and live life. I'd rather pay you to do that. Um, cutting through the jargon, providing an understanding of their choices, calculating a figure or a target that they work towards, validating that figure or target. Like I said, even the real smarty pants people will pay you for a second opinion or validation. Keeping them on track and aligned with their real life goals. Uh, for some reason, it's really easy to solve everyone else's problems, just not your own. Uh, removing the emotional pain or fear about a financial decision and helping people manage the emotional baggage that, to be fair, everyone has around money. Okay, so this is, this is a pretty cool list of stuff, isn't it? This is what we do for people. This is worth paying for. Okay, let's look at some pricing issues then off the back of all this. So the key issue, when you start to think about your pricing, and we're going to revisit this at the end and run it through these filters to make sure that what you've done uh, fits, fits this. But first of all, is what you're doing understandable and transparent? Can people get what you're charging them? The second thing is, is it profitable for you as a business? All right, it's got to be both of these things. And thirdly, does it, does it allow the client to have a win? And this is the issue I have with some of the, the I guess, the vertically integrated offerings in the marketplace. You know, that the, the pricing at every layer is so harsh that it's very difficult for the client to have a win at the end of the day. And I just, I just can't really run with that. So your pricing strategy needs to, to tick all three of these boxes. That it's understandable and transparent. You can make a good, good living out of it, but the client can still have a win too after they've paid those fees. Okay, so marketers will talk about the four P's, product, price, position, and placement. And now your pricing is going to sit within these four P's uh, in your offering to the world. And we've got here that all four P's really have to line up and send the same message. Otherwise, this doesn't work. So your product is, what do you actually sell? And, and in your case, your product is your service, okay? But what are you selling to the marketplace? Your price is how much you charge for it. Your positioning is where do you position the product in the mind of the consumer? And you will do this deliberately or by default. Even if you've never done a bit, a bit of work on, on positioning, you will have a positioning in your client's mind, whether you've done anything deliberately or not. And then the placement is how and where will people 
access your product or service. So let's look at an example uh, in another industry, just so we can get this straight in our heads. So Armani, the clothing manufacturer, what's their product? Now, you might want to do this on a piece of paper while you're listening. It makes it a bit more interesting. So grab a pen and paper and, and, and follow through with me because there's another exercise where you'll need one anyway. But Armani, the clothing man manufacturer, what's their product? What do they sell? Armani, that premium brand, what do they sell? Now, sometimes people say, Brett, they sell clothes. Yeah, they do. Uh, but that's not what they think. I'm sure that's not what they think they sell. So clothes stop you being naked. I can buy clothes for four quid at George at Asda, uh, but that's not the same as what Armani sell, is it? I'm imagining I don't own any Armani stuff, but if I did, I imagine uh, that it's going to make me feel, uh, you know, great, look great, fashionable, stylish, and maybe that's what they would say they sell, that their product is fashion or style, something like that. So that would that, be the first P for Armani. What's their price? Now, again, I don't own any of their stuff. I've done, I've done not much research on this. I did look at an Armani jacket once. It was about 1,200 quid, and that's like 10 years ago. I bet it's a lot more than that now. Uh, and I'm thinking that's a fairly expensive jacket. But when I see their ads in the cinema, you'll see Armani ads. Uh, you'll see them in like a magazine. Uh, and all the people, uh, the, the ads are all in black and white or filmed in black and white. All the people have got like no body fat whatsoever and are really good looking. And basically, all that screams into my brain is that they're a premium priced product. It's not cheap. Okay, that's what their advertising tells me. So we could probably put premium in the P box for our money. It's premium price. They sell fashion or style. Okay, their positioning. How do they position themselves in the mind of the consumer? Again, when I see all those ads and I see the way they present, uh, they're screaming at me, we are a fantastic premium product. Cool. Placement. How and where do I buy Armani stuff? So I'm imagining Armani have got shops in Paris, London, Tokyo, New York, Milan, uh, their own stores. But I know in Selfridges, there'll be an Armani concession. So it's branded Armani, even though it's in Selfridges or Harvey Nicks or something like that. How and where? So how do I buy Armani in that concession or in that store? it's going to be a face-to-face -face sale. There's going to be a salesperson who comes and helps me. Uh, they're all dressed in black. They're going to help me try on a whole bunch of stuff, aren't they? So it's a face-to-face -face sale, and it's in some restricted premium locations, their own stores in the big capitals around the world or in the premium retailers like Selfridges, Harvey Nicks. Does that make sense? So let's look at Armani's four Ps. So they sell fashion, their pricing, it's expensive, they're positioned as high-end or premium, and you get it face-to-face -face, in a face-to-face -face transaction through these restricted branded outlets. Do Armani's four Ps make sense? I'm thinking they do, right? It's a, it's a very successful company. Okay, let's look at another example, uh, Topshop. So this is another fashion brand, uh, but aimed at a slightly different market. Uh, probably none of us. So Topshop, what's their product? What do they sell? Now, people want to jump in and say, well, they also sell fashion. But it's not quite that, is it? 
Okay, so Topshop, when they started, I'm, I'm probably not allowed to say this, but when they started, they were basically like ripping off, uh, you know, designs from the catwalk and reproducing them for 30 quid or 50 quid or whatever it was. So it's like, I'm going to call it affordable fashion, aimed at a different market, aimed at a teen market, mid-20s, whatever. So it's affordable fashion. What's their pricing at Topshop? Now, it's not cheap, is it? Primark's cheap, that's dirt cheap. But it's affordable. So it's not, you know, it's not hundreds of hundreds of pounds for, you know, a, a piece of clothing. It's 50 or 60 or it's 80 or it's something like that. It's affordable fashion and it's priced affordably, not cheap, not expensive, but affordably. Um, what's their positioning? If you see ads for Topshop, you'll often see a billboard. It seems to be aimed at like, you know, like I said, teenagers, early 20s. Uh, if you're still a bit fun and funky at 31, you could nip in there for a piece or two, but that's about it. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be going in there anymore. Um, so their, their positioning is, is aimed at uh, that younger sort of fashion market, I guess you would call it. And what's the placement? How and where do I buy Topshop stuff? So if I go into Topshop, everything's hanging on the rack and it's serve yourself and you're going to queue up on the way out, and it's going to take ages to get to the till because there's so many people there. It's sort of self-service, but they're in some pretty big locations, like they've got a shop on the corner of Oxford Circus. They've got a massive floor in uh, in Selfridges. Okay, so they're in some, some premium locations, but it's serve yourself, uh, and you'll have to queue for ages to get out. So here's Topshop. Uh, they're affordable fashion, they're priced affordably, the positioning is a bit more fun and funky for young people, uh, and it's self-service, but on the high street. And does that business work? Now, I think they might be having a few challenges recently, but there was a, there was a, a time, I don't know, six or seven years ago, Philip Green pulled out a billion dollar dividend from the company that owns Topshop. Uh, so I'm thinking it was doing okay for quite a long time. But their four Ps sort of make sense, but totally different to our money. So, what are your four Ps? And I want you to just do this quickly. We'll, we'll just take a couple of minutes of quiet time to think, what are your four Ps? I want you to jot this down. Now, now don't get too caught up in this because you can do it again. Uh, you could do it with your team. That might be a fun exercise just to get input from your team. But think about your four Ps. What's your product or service? What do you sell to the marketplace? How do we describe it just at a high level for the four Ps? What's your pricing? And I want you to describe your pricing strategy, not write down, I charge this or that, but what's your pricing? Are we dirt cheap? Are we cheap? Are we affordable? Are we mid-range? Are we above average? Are we, you know, premium? Are we super premium? How would you describe your pricing strategy? Jot that down. What's your positioning with consumers? Now, again, if you've worked on this deliberately, you'll know where you're trying to sit. You know, a lot of people I know who work with small business owners, they want to look like they're doing well, but not too well, right? Not like Deutsche Bank, who've got a, a Damien Hurst hanging in the foyer. That's that, we don't want to look like we're doing that well because the clients know they, they're, they're paying for that. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fly with small business owners. If you haven't done work on this, I want you to think about how you're positioned by default. What's your website look like when people go and check you out? Can they find you on social media or are you anonymous? When they come to your office, is it great or is it horrible? You know, 
because all these things will be positioning you in the marketplace. Are we high-end, low-end, fun, family-friendly, you know, a bit old-fashioned? And, and it's okay to write those things down. You might want to change it. You might not. That might suit you. And then placement. How and where do people buy your service? So how is usually a face-to-face -face sale. Now, in post-COVID, that could be online as well, but it's still face-to-face. -face. And where? Is it in your office? Is it over Zoom? Do you go to people's houses when, you, when you're allowed to do that? So I want you to think about your four Ps. So let's have a look at an example, right? So this is one I've seen in just when we do workshops, this will come up. So see if any of this uh, you identify with. Uh, people say, look, our product is financial advice. Our pricing is above average. We're positioned as professional. So we've got professional premises, our staff, the way we present, we think it looks professional. And our placement is a face-to-face -face meeting at the client's home or their place of work. Do those four Ps work, do you think? Do they hang together perfectly like Armani's and Topshops? Okay, now you might think I'm splitting hairs, but I'm gonna take issue with one of these Ps. So, placement for me. We sell financial advice. We're positioned ourselves as a professional firm. We're charging an above average price, but then I say, I'll come and see you at your home or place of work. I've got to be honest, that, that just does not gel, that does not hang together right for me. You know, uh, if we're professional like other professions, accountants, lawyers, do accountants and lawyers see you at your home or place of work? No, I mean, not good ones anyway. So, so I just don't think that that would work for me and that would be a P that I might think, you know what, I'm going to change that. I'm happy with my other three but that's the one maybe I'm gonna to start to do some work on. Okay, here's another one. So let's say we thought our product is financial planning. We think we're doing the whole financial planning service with cash flows and you know, tax work and great pension stuff and whatever. Our pricing is above average. We're, we've positioned ourselves actually as a premium service, right? Financial planning, premium product, our website, our offices, everything, the way we communicate, premium. Placement is face-to-face -face meeting and you have to come and see me in my office pre-COVID, okay? But I'm def I definitely don't do home visits. I might do it over Zoom, but I don't do home visits. Okay, do those four Ps work, do you think? Perfectly, beautifully, like Topshop and Armani. Okay, again, I'm gonna nitpick here and say, I don't think they do. So. Financial planning, assuming it's premium product, we're positioned as a premium, we insist on people coming to our beautiful offices, that's part of the experience when they come in, but we're only priced as above average. Where should we be priced if all these other things are true? Premium, that's it. So we could probably push the pricing. Now, if you say you're premium and you insist on all these things, but then you quote a price that's not high enough, people people are gonna worry like what's what's potentially wrong with this. It doesn't mean you're gonna go out of business and no one's gonna buy, people will buy, but it's sending the wrong message. It doesn't add up. And I think it could cause you some grief. So think about this example. Um, 
you're going to go into the supermarket and you're going to buy yourself a disposable razor and you can buy one that costs 12 pence or you can buy one that's going to cost 28 pence. Which one do you buy? 12p or 28p? I've got to be honest, I'm buying the one for 28p. I've got no idea why. I'm just sort of assuming that price is an indicator of quality. And I'm not thinking this consciously, but I'm going to pick up the one for 28 pence. And there's, there's a part of my brain going, I'm not letting a razor that only costs 12p anywhere near my face or any other part of my body for that matter. Okay. So I'm just thinking that, that price is an indicator of quality. We know this to be true in a lot of professions, a lot of industries, a lot of products. It's not always true. You know, sometimes we get dudded, I get it. But as a general guide, things that cost more are better than things that cost less. So again, if you're trying to think about where you sit and how you're positioned, this is a really important thing to get straight. So think about your four Ps uh, and, and think about whether you might need to work on those to get those really fitting together how you want them to fit together. Okay. One more quick exercise. Now, grab a pen and paper. I want you to write these headings down on a piece of paper for you and your business. So right, left to right, product, price, market, and service. I'm gonna ask you some questions. So, um, your product, so your this, the, what you sell, your product here is your service, okay? What you sell to the marketplace if we surveyed a bunch of your clients, 100 of your clients, right, and said, um, you know, would they, sorry, we are survey 100 of your clients, would they say that your product, what you sell to the market is better than the average advisor? Okay, and if that's the case, you're going to put an arrow up in that box. Would your clients say, you know what, you're about the same as the average advisor, in which case you're going to put a dash? Or would they say that you're worse than the average advisor, what you sell to the marketplace, in which case you'll draw an arrow down? They're your only three options. I don't want any diagonal arrows. Okay, so are you better than the market average, what you sell to the market? About the same as the market average, about the same as the average advisor, or worse? And we're going to just imagine we've surveyed your clients. You don't need to do this. You can just get a feel for what you think they might say. Does that make sense? Okay, in the next box, price. When you think about your current approach to pricing, are you, uh, if we surveyed 100 of your clients, would they say that you're dearer than the average advisor? Draw an arrow up. Would they say you're about the same as the average advisor? Draw a dash. Or would they say that you're cheaper than the average advisor? Draw an arrow down. Okay, for the next box, market, I'm going to get you to make this decision. You're going to look at your clientele. When you look at your client base as a whole, as a group, um, are your clients better than the average advisor's clients, which is an arrow up? Are they about the same as the average advisor's clients, which is a dash? Or are they worse than the average advisor's clients, which is an arrow downwards? You're just going to have to make a call on that. Go with your first thoughts. And then the last box, service. This is your ongoing service, right? The ongoing service you provide to clients. You follow up after you've done the plan and they've become a client. 
if we went back to your 100 clients and surveyed them again, what would they say? Would they say that your ongoing service is better than the average advisor? Arrow up. Would they say it's about the same as the average advisor? A dash. Or would they say it's worse than the average advisor? Arrow downwards. Okay, fill that in. And then let me tell you what this is telling you about your business. Okay, it doesn't matter what you've got, but they all need to be the same. Okay, so all arrows up, all arrows down, or all dashes. So let's just think of businesses in other industries. Give me an example of a business that's all arrows up. The product they sell is better than the average, you know, in their, the, their average competitor. The price they charge for it is more than their competitors. The people they sell to are above average compared to their competitors. And the ongoing service they provide is better than the average in the competition. You know, Apple would be an example, perhaps, unless you hate Apple. Rolls-Royce, perhaps, you know, Porsche, uh, some of those premium brands might be that. Give me an example of a fabulous business that's all arrows downwards. So the product is worse than the competition. The charge less than the competition. The people they sell to are lower than the, the market average. And the ongoing service you get is worse than the, their competitors. But it's a great business. What about someone like Ryanair? They'd be the classic example. Okay, great business, but it's, it's all arrows down. They know who they are. And then give me an example of a company that's, that's all dashes. So the product they sell is about the same as their competitors. They charge about the same. They sell it to mid-market people. And the ongoing service is about the same as the competition. You know, maybe Ford or Vauxhall or some of those brands might be that. Okay, let's think about your arrows. So let me talk through a couple of examples. If you have these, I'll, I'll give you a few examples and tell you what we need to address. So Pretend you're the consultant. You, you, you see your business looks like this. So we think we sell a product that's better than the market average. We sell it to upmarket people better than average. We provide great ongoing service, but our pricing is about average. How do we fix this business? Clearly, we need to increase the price to reflect those other three things, assuming they're true. And you could double check on that. But if that's true, then we would need to increase the price in this business and you probably do that relatively easily without, without any resistance. Okay, what about this business? The product we sell is better than the market average, better than the average advisor. The ongoing service we provide better than the average advisor, but the price we charge is about average and we're selling it to about average clients. How do we fix this business? What needs to change? Now, clearly, there's two theoretical options, and I say theoretical because for me, one of them doesn't work. So theoretically, if, if these are the people that we're selling to, this is the market we sell to, it's average clients and we're charging an average price, we could dumb down the product and dumb down the service. We could take it back a notch, couldn't we? That's a theoretical option. But what's, uh, what's that great saying, um, you know, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. So I think in practice, if you've worked hard for 20 years to get qualifications, know your onions, you've, you've made a lot of mistakes, you've learned a lot of stuff, you're experienced. When a client walks in the door, can you really give them less than your best 
just because that seems to fit this theoretical model of how we should run a great business. Can you dumb these things down and take them back a notch and do less than you know to serve these markets? Now, if you're stuck in an area where that's all you can do, uh, maybe you do. But I think most advisors can't help themselves. They're going to deliver their absolute best at the cutting edge of their skill set. And that means to me that dumbing those down is not the answer. The answer is this. It's trying to find better people to do it for and charging more to do it would probably be my solution in that business. I'm thinking 99% of the time. Does that make sense? Okay, what about this one? The product, better than the average advisor. We're charging more than the average advisor. We give better ongoing service than the average advisor, but we're selling it to, you know, uh, bog standard, mid-market type people. What do we have to do here? We have to find a way to start to get in front of better quality clients. That's it. And that would be a marketing issue or a, a disengaging from some clients issue. Maybe we've got some of these people at the top end of our client base, but not across the board. And that would be something that would be absolutely fixable. It might take us two years, three years to do that, but we could fix that. So remember, doesn't matter what they are, but they've all got to be the same. So what comes out of that exercise for you? What's the stuff that you might want to work on as a result of that? Okay, let's look at what we've learned here in, in our first session. So it's never about the price. It's always about the value. All aspects of your business need to make sense. You can't price in isolation. You can't say, Brett, what should I charge? Well, mate, you're going to have to tell me a lot of other stuff before I, before I can sort of give you a guide on what that might look like. We will get to that. But this is really important that you start to think about these issues because it's really going to help. And you need to be asking great questions to find out how bad things are hurting when people come and see you, for, you know, as new inquiries for, for a brand new client. If you can get those questioning skills working, um, it's really going to help give you confidence when you go to tell people the price at the end of that meeting or in some sort of follow-up. So when you think about your business, how is it looking? You know, what's great about where you are right now as a business? What are you really happy with? What's already working well in your mind? And then think about, okay, and where are the gaps? What's not lining up so well? Or what, what might it, what, what's on my list now after hearing all this that I might want to tweak or change or revisit and just make sure that it all lines up? And maybe are there some new skills that you and your team might need to start learning if we wanted to take that up a notch? The, the marketing example we looked at, the business that's got everything going on except the right types of clients, maybe the new skill we need to learn is how to market ourselves more effectively. And again, that's probably a journey. I, I, I wish we could just hire someone in to do that for us. They'll help. But I think there's some learning that's going to go on. And that would be an example of new skills we might need to learn. Maybe our questioning skills in the first meeting are not quite up to speed. We could do some work on that. There's plenty of places you can get that help. To find out more about how Sense can help your advisory firm, go to sense-network.co.uk. Thanks for listening.